Well, thank you to all the people who've helped this morning uh, lead the service. Uh, just listen to this carefully. For a time, I thought I was the Tony one that would be here. Oh. Yeah, okay, okay. Yes. But uh, <clears throat> I'm grateful to, uh, to uh, Mark and Joanna, both are local preachers in this circuit who are helping me this morning, and everybody the choir and the readers. Hinges. They're often small things, but of course, they're things on which much bigger things hang. Like a door, or a lid, or a box, or a plane wing, or a knee joint. We say, don't we, everything hinges on this meaning that everything that follows is dependent on that decision now, this or that. Which will he choose? Everything hinges on this decision. And we recognize, uh, don't we, especially when we're looking back in time, that there are hinge points, there are turning points, there are pivot points in all walks of life. There are hinge points in stories, in experiences, in relationships, in the evolution of life from birth to death. For a long time, biblical scholars have talked about there being hinge points in the Gospels, pivotal, critically important points in the story of Jesus that changed the direction of the story. In Luke's writing, for example, an important hinge point is the point between the end of the gospel and the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, and particularly related around the ascension of Jesus. His return to heaven, job done on earth, is the hinge the pivot between the completion of his earthly ministry and the time that the disciples waiting in Jerusalem will receive the Holy Spirit and then go in Jesus' name. Mark's gospel is a very good example of a hinge point. For the first few chapters of Mark, <clears throat> Jesus is superhero. He is action man. At a breathless pace, he goes here to there to there, performing healing miracles everywhere he goes. A blind man here, casting out spirits there, something somewhere else. And biblical scholars note how very often in the early chapters of Mark, you get the word that we translate immediately. And immediately Jesus did this, and then immediately he went and did that, and then he went this, and immediately he turned and did something else. And then in roughly the middle of the gospel, in later chapter 8 of a 16-chapter book, all the immediately's stop. Jesus, the mighty miracle worker, turns to his disciples and he says to them, who do people say I am? And you know the story. 
Peter declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And up to now, at that point, there's been no mention that they realize this or they regard Jesus in this way. He has been up to now rabbi, teacher, healer. You're right, Simon, says Jesus. That's who I am. And then as the hinge in the story moves again, he begins, Jesus begins for the very first time, but not the last time, to tell them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, and that he must die. And they don't understand. God forbid, says Peter, we can't let you, can't let you go to Jerusalem. We can't let this happen to you. Get behind me, Satan, says Jesus. You don't understand what the purposes of God are. You're blind. I'm going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying and only at a later part in Mark and the other Gospels starts adding on and after three days the Son of Man will be raised again. It's pivotal. It's the hinge point in Mark's Gospel. Everything else hangs on this. If you don't accept this, then Jesus is effectively saying, your following of me ends at this point in the story. You can't continue to be my disciples unless you move through the hinge of saying, then we will go to Jerusalem with you. And from that hinge point in Mark, the miracles slow down and almost disappear, the teaching increases, and the long journey to Jerusalem and all that happens along the way takes up half the gospel, leading some scholars to talk of Mark as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Now, here in Matthew, because <clears throat> it's in Matthew Transfiguration we're in this morning, but I've done the last three years of focusing upon the other transfiguration stories and I thought you'd get bored of me doing another sermon I did last year. In Matthew, the account of Jesus' transfiguration is a hinge point. It's a pivot point in the story of Jesus told by Matthew. More than Mark, Matthew's gospel mixes up miracles and teaching together. There's not the freneticism of Jesus in the early chapters. And Jesus is right from the beginning somebody who does a miracle and then talks about it. Does another miracle somewhere else and then talks about it. It's Matthew who interrupts a whole series of miracles and has, my, uh, has Jesus going up a mountain, very interestingly for transfiguration of Moses, and saying, now I want to teach you. And we have three chapters of uninterrupted teaching. And then Jesus comes down and immediately he's healing again. In Matthew's story of Jesus, we're some chapters away from the time that Jesus says, so who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And it's this story in Matthew where, like Jesus' baptism, God 
becomes clearly present and the voice of God is heard and he effectively says to those there listening, the three disciples, Peter, James and John, this is my son. He's not messed it up. He's done all things well. Now listen to him. Listen to him because from now on he's going to start telling you some really hard things. And realize that because he's my son and because he's done all things well and because he's going to say some hard things to you, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. It actually means that you're going to walk a hard road. And when Moses and Elijah appear to minister to Jesus, it's Peter who got it wrong in the previous story. He gets it wrong again. Let me build buildings for you, Lord. Let me build dwellings. One for you and one for Elijah and, and, and one for Moses. And we can stay here. And in the transfiguration stories, Jesus almost looks at him sort of disdainfully and basically says nothing and says, we're going to Jerusalem. And in Mark and Luke, we just have to imagine that at some point the disciples get up and ditch the idea of building caravans or whatever and begin to follow him down the road. And because of the continuing story of Jesus, therefore, we know that this, not for the first or the last time, they will fail to understand what he's saying. Now, <clears throat> why do I bother with all this? Here is the main thing about hinge points in the gospel, whether they're in Luke or Mark or Matthew or wherever they are. Hinge points do several things. First, they change the direction of those who encounter the event in question. You enter the event thinking life is that way and it's like this. And you end the event thinking, uh-uh, I've got to move everything 20 degrees over here. Which means, secondly, that if you continue in the story... If you continue along the road, you are going in a different direction. Go to Jerusalem, Jesus says, the ascended Jesus says in Luke. Go to Jerusalem and wait there. So they do. And every piece of logic says that when Jesus comes, he says, I've got this really special mission for you in Jerusalem. Stay here. And when the Spirit comes, which we celebrate on Pentecost, the Spirit comes, gets them out of the room and says, new rules, Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's that way. And they have to make a decision. If I'm going to continue following Jesus, and I thought it was here and doing this, it's not. It's there and doing that. Second thing, hinge points challenge the disciples, therefore, whether they want to remain disciples. At each point in the story as we're reading how the disciples and Jesus' relationship goes, 
the disciples are really being posed time after time after time, do you still want to follow? Are you still, are you still signed up for this? There's one lovely point shortly after this account in Matthew where Jesus has been doing some teaching. He turns around to the disciples and says, um, lots of people are now leaving. Are you going to leave? And for once, it's Simon who gets it right. Lord, where else will we go? You might be going in a direction that seems a bit odd and a bit dangerous. But you've got the words of eternal life. So how can we go anywhere else? So at each point, a hinge point poses the question, do I still want to be a follower of Jesus? Thirdly, and in consequence, hinge points are costly and demanding. They're not easy things for ourselves or for other people. Another hinge point, for instance, is where Jesus calls the disciples who have been fishing. Tony talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I mean, can you imagine getting to heaven and coming across Peter's wife? Uh, Mrs. Peter, do you know, I've waited, I've waited a long time to talk to you. Tell me, what was it like when your old man turned up one day and said, Dorcas, I'm going away? Who with? That rabbi who preaches down by the side of the lake. Well, where are you going? Not sure. Well, how long are you going for? Not sure. So what's going to happen to the fishing business then? Well, you're floating around wherever you're going. Not sure. Well, how are we going to eat? Not sure. Well, I hope you don't think that I'm starting the business up. It would be a wonderful conversation with Mrs. Peter. But following and then continue to follow and then when it's not quite going how you think it ought to do, choosing that you're still going to follow and you're still going to follow. It's costly for you, for other people. Fourthly, whether in the baptism of Jesus, whether his crucifixion, whether his resurrection, whether his ascension, it results, therefore, if we say yes, in traveling differently and with new insights and fresh faith and new realization. You see, as they tramped down the hill after the transfiguration, they're not going in the direction that they thought they would be going in, but they walk down the hill having a completely different understanding of who Jesus is than when they walked up the hill. They walked up the hill with a miracle worker and a good preacher. They walked down the hill with the voice from the clouds, which is undoubtedly the voice of God, saying, this is my son. Now listen to him. So they're not just walking a different direction physically. They're thinking, gosh, this person's a different person to who I thought he was. And the stakes are getting higher and higher and higher, not least for a monotheistic Jew. Hinge points change lives. 
Now, there are hinge points in our lives, of course, that decisions that change the direction of our lives. The first time that you meet the person who you subsequently marry. Sometimes the most innocuous kind of meetings. And it changes your life. Choosing to take this course at college or university rather than that one, or choosing to go to that place rather than this, and everything else that follows, because that decision was pivotal. And then there's life occurrences, the birth of a child, and the new responsibilities that brings. Uh, I remember in my second appointment in 1846, we had a, a lad, late 20s, built like a tank. He was a bricklayer, and he and his dad had a small company. And his wife, who was a petite thing, gave birth to a daughter in St. Luke's Hospital in Bradford. And I just happened to be there, so I got there before he did. And there she is, two hours old, laid in this little pink incubator thing next to mum, who's looking proud as punch. And he comes in, and the door bashes open. Are you all right, love? And he looks at his daughter. And this 18 stone, six foot four bloke, just dissolves in tears. It's a change of life, pivotal moment. Or marriage, I've been on my own. In human terms, I'm the most important person in the world, and now suddenly, I'm not. We are. It's a pivotal moment. Or the death of a loved one. What is all this about, Lord? How do I get through this? Or if you become the matriarch or the patriarch of a family group and you suddenly find yourself the eldest generation in the family and you begin to say to yourself, so what does that mean? in terms of my children and my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. It's a hinge point. Researchers say that such hinge points of human life are hinge points for human faith. For example, all these points of life, the birth of a baby, a marriage, a divorce, a death, whatever, are points at which we know people who once were churchgoers stop going to church and sometimes stop believing altogether. It's not just in the Gospels that a hinge point provides you with an opportunity and a challenge to decide whether you're going to continue in the way of faith or not. But we also know that the points of human life, such as we've mentioned, 
are points where people who were once churchgoers and then stopped are most susceptible to returning to church. Or even more importantly, they're most susceptible when taking stock of their lives at these pivot points that they choose to reactivate a relationship with the living God. My bricklayer, who was at best a kind of supportive husband for a rather devout wife, went through a transformational conversion experience that led to the baptism of the daughter. It doesn't happen all the time. And it wasn't about shining lights from heaven. It was about, so God's made this and blessed us with this, and now I've got to change my life because of her. You've got it. You've got it. You understood. In other words, hinge points present us with a challenge. How am I going to live my life? Which direction am I going? Am I still going to remain a follower, a disciple? Even though my life has changed direction, even though something's happening to me at this moment, I didn't choose, I don't want, I'm fearful about what it means. I'm faced with a choice, an inevitable choice. Do I continue faithfully or do I use this as a point to sit down and opt out? It's hard stuff. If I make it sound at all easy this morning, I failed. But one last thing, because I've misled you a little, and I apologize for that, especially seeing I've done it deliberately. You see, in Mark and Luke's version of the story of Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus does indeed tell Peter off. Lord, let me make three, three booths for you. And in Mark, you get a kind of, well, it's a Martin Atkins translation of the Greek, and it's a loose translation, but it goes, are you stark raving bonkers? Why would I want to stay up here with you? We're going to Jerusalem, and you can make your mind up whether you come or not. That's the loose paraphrase of Mark. But in Matthew's story of the transfiguration, look at it if you don't believe me in the order of service. It's the one we read today. We read that while Peter was saying, Lord, if you like, we'll make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, he doesn't even get to the end of the sentence. And splitting through his mistaken words, the voice from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. Don't be afraid. Get up. And when they get up, lovely phrase from Matthew, there is only Jesus. Hinge points 
are hard and costly, and they do relate to our following of Jesus. And whether we choose to continue to do that, and whenever we choose to do that, and however hard it is to do that, and if you're struggling to continue to do that, think of Matthew's version of the transfiguration, of a Jesus who touches you on the shoulder when you're petrified. and says, don't be afraid. Follow me. So today, I hope we will, as Lent approaches, choose again on a small hinge point called the 23rd of February, 2020. However we found this morning, in whichever direction, with whichever hinge points affecting us, to choose again to follow the one who says, don't be afraid, but you must follow me.